Hello, and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the Bone Love Podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor, and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. My name is Josh Tate, and here on the Bold Love Podcast, we are looking to have candid discussions of what it looks like to better love your neighbor. Pastor Bob Roberts hopes to model these civil conversations to show how to better relate to others and how building relationships with those different than you uh, without compromising your faith is incredibly important. So this podcast, if you haven't listened before, it has a really wide variety of people that we have on including Christians, including Muslims and Jews and people of other faiths and society and government leaders. We feel it's important and it's very unique podcast that really dives into the lives of these bridge builders that are really making a difference in the world by modeling these discussions and modeling how to truly love your neighbor. And today is no different. Today, our guest is Zinat Rahman, who is the director of the Inclusive America Project at the Aspen Institute. She is an expert on global youth issues and multi-faith and diversity engagement and actually served as a special advisor to secretaries Clinton and Kerry on global youth issues at the U.S. Department of State. Her experience spans national security and foreign policy and leadership development through work in government, private sector, and NGOs, effectively bridging the gap between policy and community solutions. So she is such a perfect fit for our discussion that we have here on the Bold Love Podcast. We get the chance to hit so many great topics that we get to touch on with Zenat today. So I do want to go ahead and welcome on the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. and his conversation with Zenat. Here you go. I am excited today to have a real, live, positive, enthusiastic person from the Aspen Institute with me on the Bo Love podcast. This is going to be fun. And she happens to be Muslim. That's kind of cool. I mean, what is this? A, a, a Muslim working work, woman working at a liberal think tank. Come on. You got a conservative Baptist preacher on the other end of this. We got to visit about some stuff. Let's so do I it. Wanna, I want to thank you so much for being here. Thanks for taking time out. Uh, I want to ask you two or three questions before we get into the interview. Tell us a little bit about your background, your formative uh, points of life. I'm just curious. I am a born, raised, educated, proud Chicagoan. And so my parents immigrated here, my dad first, and then went back and married my mom in the mid-70s, came and settled on the north side of Chicago right by the lake. Um, in an apartment complex that had many other people like them. So they built a community in that apartment complex of, you know, people who were striving to be in the middle class, basically, and, and you know, taking their education, taking whatever they could have applied from where they came from, but really starting fresh here. Um, so I'm a child of that experience and proudly went to Chicago public schools, um, did my undergrad at University of Illinois at Chicago, um, and then grad school later at University of Chicago. Um, and then I got the itch for public service. And I always, you know, being in Chicago, you don't quite know what that means. People talk about it, but it feels like something that's not accessible to somebody like me. Um, 
And in the first Obama administration, there was a faith-based office and Joshua Dubois was the head of that faith-based office. And this president started talking about interfaith cooperation. And I happened to work at a Chicago organization called the Interfaith Youth Corps. And we thought, if this is not uh-huh. a moment. You worked with Ibu? I did work with Ibu, who's still one of my I close friends. I didn't know that. Oh, I, yeah. I did not know this. Yeah. I'm so learning Ibu, all kinds of stuff. And you worked with uh, Josh Dubois. Well, uh, yes, I did. I did. Um, Ibu, when I started Interfaith Youth Corps, I'll tell you the story of how we, how I even started there another time. But um, there was 13 employees and we kind of all, we were in two rooms that were contiguous and we'd all just be at our little desks. To when I left, there was 35 employees and we were in this much more beautiful space. Now they have an even more beautiful space with 35 employees that had distinct job titles. And so I had just the honor of a lifetime, as, as you know, as you're building something when you're building, you know, an organization. Um, and I got to play a hand in building Interfaith Youth Corps. And so when this President Obama started talking about interfaith cooperation and how important that was, we thought this is a moment to jump in. And so we became very involved with the White House faith-based office and tried to bring the connections that we were making in the in the country, in the world. I did a lot of our international engagement to this you know, White House and just helped them build out what, what it meant to do interfaith cooperation. And one of the highlights of that was being able to do this thing with the Department of Ed, the White House, Interfaith Youth Corps around is called the Pre- President's Challenge on Interfaith Cooperation. And so it was coupling basically community service with interfaith cooperation. Um, and religion is something government is a little allergic to. And so that was a really proud moment to be able to, you know, get um, get that approved. And, has, and it was a challenge that ran, I think maybe still runs um, for many years, but through the Department of Education. So I was bitten. I was bitten. I was bitten by D.C. And then I made the move over and then they recruited me in the faith based office at USAID. And they said, you know, one of my friends actually was heading it. He's a Jewish kid. And he said, wouldn't it be great if it was a Jew and a Muslim at the head of this office, you know, of international development? And I said, yes. So I went over there. I made the (laughs) made the move to D.C., spent um, several years there, went over to the State Department and then actually felt a calling after the last several years of wanting to be back home and be close to my parents. So I'm actually back in Chicago, even though I continue to work at Aspen. Okay. What do you mean by calling? What, what is that about? You said you felt a calling. Yeah. I'm, I am part of the sandwich generation where I'm in my forties. I have a young kid and I have aging parents and I just feel the urgency of wanting to make sure those two generations of people spend as much time as they can together and that I'm in it somewhere and get to spend time with them as well. That's and so good. Just wanting to be close to family, you know, That's knowing cool. that, yeah, time is short. Time is short. Tell us a little bit about the Aspen Institute. What does it do? What's it about? A lot of people know, a lot of people don't know. Yeah. The Aspen Institute is a think and do tank is what we <laughs> call ourselves. Um, and the the mission of the Aspen Institute is to build a just and inclusive society. So kind of the biggest thing you can imagine, right? Like that's a that's big talk. And the way that it does it is by, you know, doing leadership development. So we have a lot of leadership and fellowship programs. We have a beautiful campus in Aspen where we bring people together to get to know themselves better and their own leadership journey. Um, and where I said is in policy programs. So I had a, poli- um, a policy program called the Inclusive America Project. And it looks at the intersection of religion and society. But I have colleagues who focus on food and society and sports and society and ocean and environment. I mean, the Aspen Institute does many, 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 many different things. And we all and it's under this 
you know, big idea that we're all pushing for this justice and um, equity in a more equitable world. So there would there be 10 projects like yours or dozens of projects like yours? Um, there's probably a couple dozen policy programs, but ours is the one that uniquely focuses on the intersection of faith and society, religion and society. How did you so wind up working on that one? It's my background, you know, um, it's, it's, I had, I've done this work for now 15, almost 20 years of basically working in civil society, looking at how you equip young people, faith-based actors, you know, to be stronger, to, they're already agents of change, to be stronger agents of change and to connect them to the places of power, policy, influence, money yeah. to do their work better. And so I was alarmed after the 2016 presidential election at how divisive everything felt. And I just spent my time working at the State Department and said, you know, the challenges that I had looked at when I was at Interfaith Youth Corps are actually the ones I want to come and work at now. So this domestic thing is important to me. So what is the Inclusive America Project? You had that up. What is it? Um, with the Inclusive America Project is a, pro is a project of the Aspen, at the Aspen Institute, a program at the Aspen Institute that's really centering on this um, question of how do we look at religion as a force for good in the world and especially in our society, in American society? So we live in the most, you know, in a multi-religious, multi-racial, multi-ethnic nation. That's an experiment. We're fairly new, right? And so what does it look like to all live together? And we really center this idea of pluralism in our definition of what the Inclusive America Project is, which is that we're not all meant to come from the same community, right? Like that the challenge and the opportunity for us in this country is how do we live together, but still maintain our differences. Um, and we just think that, you know, religion has gotten a bad name. You know, I think that l folks think religion and the public square or, or religion and society and they cringe because of the headlines, but the real work that's happening in, you know, Bob, like you're doing in communities across this country, it's that, religious organizations and faith-based, faith-inspired people are the backbone of yeah. what holds communities together. You know, I don't think Zenet people probably realize how diverse America is. I mean, if you travel to Africa, there really is, there's diversity, but there's a lot of homogeneity and other parts of the world, whether it's the Middle East or parts of Asia. But when you come to the States from religion to race, to background, how, how, how diverse is America compared to other countries from your experience and background? Yeah, I would say we're like, we're one of the most, if not most. I was wondering if we wouldn't be the most diverse country under one tent. You know, I mean, I think that um, I used to do a lot of travel to Western Europe to meet with uh, minority Muslim um, community leaders, young leaders and I was always struck at how homogenous like European countries were and right. that their, you know, yeah. their challenge is how do you deal with the intersection of this? Ours, of course, has been that way from its inception, you know? And so I think like this idea of, it, it, this is why I think of us as an experiment. Like, I don't know that this has been done successfully yeah. anywhere else. And, and just also not to forget, like just the good fortune and privilege we have to live in a country that has resources. Yeah. And that, you know, there is suffering for sure, but like there isn't war. I mean, yeah. you know, just the, just the great blessings that we've been given by, by the circumstances of, you know, how this country came about. I think a lot of times as Americans right now, 
some of us uh, have a certain amount of anxiety, all the tension, the polarization. You mentioned it uh, after the 2016 election. And yet, when you realize our diversity and you understand our Constitution, I mean, it, it's honestly, I, I don't know we would have made it had we not had the Constitution. For all the challenges that we face, uh, the e pluribus unum, that motto, that's a, that's a big deal. So, so you're a scholar and you're actually a part of a project I'm a part of. You wrote a chapter in a book I wrote in. And so I, that makes me a scholar, Zenat. I can't I'm, believe I, it. Yeah, no, I can't. I, I'm ecstatic. We we wrote a book, Bob. I can't believe. I, it. I know, but but you're smart. I mean, you have the uh, you have the credentials to prove it. I'm just I'm just I'm just a Baptist preacher. So I'm excited to be a part of that intellectual project because that means I'm smart. So having <laughs> said that, there's a term that this book is all about: covenantal pluralism. That's a mouthful. What, what is that? What's that about? Covenantial pluralism. So, you know better than I, the definition of covenant, right? But I, I think it's promise, right? Or like, what is our yeah. promise to one another? And so I think the idea of pluralism, which is that we're not trying to make an experiment well, where we are all the same, where we all speak the same language, have the same ethnicity, have this, you know, or come from the same background, have the same religion. Like that is not ever going to work and never has. Um, but rather we have these differences and the, that there is richness in those differences. And that covenantal pluralism is when you um, put those two things together. So how do we approach one another with love, respect, trust, and appreciation of that difference, but still think about what is it that we're doing together? Like, what is our project for doing good in the world and in this country? So that's how I understand it. I take it, try to take it out of the intellectual terms and say, okay, at the very basic level, I have a bond with you because we both live here in this country yeah. together. And so we must have a bond. We can't ignore each other. And so what is that bond based on? You know, and 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 then does that help embody this beautiful idea? American ideal, as you said, of e pluribus unum, whose application has not been seen yet. Right? We've never had a robust, vibrant, pluralistic nation. For many of our African American brothers and sisters, it's never been the case right. that they've, you know, or, or indigenous brothers and sisters. And so, what would that look like to live into that? I think it's exciting to think about. I do too. Pluralism in my tribe as an evangelical is, is a bad word. Uh, there's even a theology built around it. But I think the problem is a lot of evangelicals view pluralism as syncretism. And so, well, we're just saying I have to water down what I believe to make it work with everybody else. And, and you don't. Uh, pluralism is, is a practical reality of all of us. It, it's, it, it's not a system of belief. It is just how we live our lives. And if we can live in covenant together, I mean, even, even in my tribe, we forget our history, that there was this concept, Tim Keller's written about it recently, called common grace. And so what does it mean to live in the context of that? L let me ask you this, Zenat. you have focused a tremendous amount on youth. Give me some hope. T tell me the young people coming up are going to do a better job than, than uh, people my age. Um, I have always believed in like the superpower of young people. And I saw that borne out when I was at the State Department. I had the tremendous privilege of traveling the world and meeting with young people around the world, hearing their ideas, 
listening to their ideas to uh, around entrepreneurship to solve some of the challenges that they were seeing. So I think like one thing I really appreciate about um, about this generation, and I think at this point it's generations, you know, so Generation Z, Generation Millennials, Generation all of those younger people, um, is that they're much, I think they're much more accepting of who one another is. You know, I think um, there was maybe more rigid category when I was trying to figure out who I was in the world about, you know, what was acceptable or who could, who was considered part of the in-group. And I think young people today are just generally more accepting of one another as, as they form their own identity and which is, you know, a long process, but certainly begins um, at a pretty young age. I hear, I hear justice is one of their big values and issues. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're really driven towards, towards justice, towards making this, towards, I think young people today are really driven towards their role in changing the world for the better. And so what do I mean by that? You know, I think like they are trying to figure out, I really care about climate change. How am I going to fix that? You know, I really care about the suffering I'm seeing in my community because of the pandemic how am I going to fix that? And like, they have this like spirit of not waiting for systems or people to help them. And maybe because the systems have failed them, I don't know. Um, But coming up with the solutions themselves. And one of my favorite examples from the pandemic is this high schooler in in Chicago, in one of the suburbs that I, um, that my parents live in, just basically came up with the COVID vaccine, I don't know, software or something where you just go to the site and it would tell you in real time when an appointment came up and, you know, in 10 second, like updates. So you could go to it and it would say, Walgreens has an appointment 10 seconds ago and people could grab it, you know? And that to me is just like, and so then he got like showcased on the news and he said, I just saw a problem and I fixed it. And I really, I think that's, um, that is the really optimistic thing about young people. I think the other thing is that they are longing for community and for connection. And I think like neither you or I grew up as, you know, digital natives, right? We didn't have a phone glow to glue to our hand. So we know what before times when <laughs> right. we could turn it off, we could shut, shut right. the laptop to, you know, there was no phone here um, and they don't have that. And so, you know, I worry, I was, I worry about, getting people, but especially people out of their heads and into like real life. And I, so I think that's a challenge and an opportunity is we know young people are longing for community and connection. We know that they're really lonely and isolated. Um, Those born between like the late nineties and the 2010s are among the most isolated and loneliest generation on record. So what are we changing? You know, how can we change to build community? I mean, I think that's our, again, our challenge and our opportunity. And, and really, both of those things that you just stated, they acted on it and they want community. It's all about relationships. Yeah. It's all about relationships. I think uh, there's a lot of discussion about systems. How do we fix systems, uh, whether they're, they're dealing with race or gender or any one of a dozen different things? I've wondered sometimes, what if instead of focusing on systems, you just focused on people? and empowering people. I think sometimes it's hard for people in my tribe. I'm just going to be candid with you about this, Zenat. They hear systemic racism and they go, oh, what do you mean systemic? But I was thinking not long ago of a university president who got in a lot of trouble and he was, he was terminated. And what they discovered is that whole board around him uh, was very unhealthy because to hold him in power 
they themselves had to be sick in some ways and unhealthy. And I think sometimes it's not always the systemic power as much as it is the people and their own brokenness. And if we can find, if we can find people uh, and place them in the systems and the people become more important with the systems, I think we can change them. Push back. Am I right? Am I wrong? Or uh, what you just said, made, it made me think of, um, you know, oftentimes in, in government, we say people is policy. And what that means is that, you know, if you have, let's say, a diverse workforce making it, 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 so if you have a table and somebody's trying to decide, you know, what is our policy with X country and you have folks around that table that have real life experience in that country or with the, you know, um, background, ethnic or racial or cultural backgrounds of those people. That's going to look different than if you just had, you know, a bunch of people who are who read about this place in a book. And yeah. so I do think that, you know, and I used to say this to young people all the time when they would, you know, rail against like big institutions. It's like, well, you forget that it's people who work in those institutions, yeah. you know, and it's and and so they're not just these like gray blobs. I mean, these are informed and powered by people who are coming and, you know, as neutral as they may seem, they're coming at it from their life experience, like we do with everything in the, yeah. in, you know, in our life. And so I'm agreeing with you on this one. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm viewed as an expert on Muslims. So evangelicals <laughs> view me, boy, Bob knows about Muslims and I'm not, I mean, I have to fight to read books like everybody else. I'm super busy. The thing is, I'm just friends with a lot of Muslims. That's yeah. it. I'm just yeah. friends. Uh, you'll be coming to our church uh, with Dr. Alalisa. We were waiting to speak and uh, we were actually sitting uh, in a room right beside the speaking room, but I didn't understand. This is bad Zenet. This is like five years ago. I didn't know what the Muslim World League was. I'd heard of it. You know, he was all excited. He was the president. He was telling me all about it. I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was. We just started talking and laughing and having fun. And it's exciting when you get to know people as real. One, one, of my, one of my good friends, okay, don't get upset with me. You may, may not like this guy, but I love him, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. And I remember I met him uh, 15 years ago, and they put me beside him at this conference room. I'd never been around anyone like that. I mean, I'm from East Texas, you know, <laughs> and it had HRH. Turkey Al-Faisal. And I asked him, I said, I didn't know who he was, where he was from. I said, now, what does HRH stand for? You did is, not. Yeah, I did. I didn't know what that meant. And he looked That's at me funny. and he said, his royal highness. I said, ah, you're teasing me. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he wasn't. But to this day, I mean, we, we talk to one another when we're in D.C. together. We'll go eat. We just, I think we can do so much if we just humanize one another and don't look at that person like they're liberal or they're conservative or or they're this or that. Just see them as a human being. I think that's a big deal. How do you see Zenat this play out in other countries? I mean, what you're saying about Gen Y and so forth, how does that translate? I think the trends around kind of youth opportunity or youth entrepreneurism, entrepreneurialism, you know, youth, young people creating solutions to problems that they see in their local communities. Like that's like hypercharged when I go to places, you know, like the West bank, or as you mentioned, Nairobi, or I'm trying to think of other places I've gone Kampala, you know, and like young people are really creating a lot with very little resources. It frankly, even at the, um, this is in 20, 14, but like around um, 
in the in the um, refugee camps, yeah. Syrian refugee camps in Turkey. You know, where where I would see like um, young people who had to leave college and school, but then teaching the younger kids that were there. And so I think you see a lot of um, entrepreneurialism and energy with very you know, when people have very little resources. I think the interesting thing about, you know, youth identity is that like there's certain trends that young people are facing together, you know, and, and so. So do these American trends, does it translate over there? I think they're global trends. And what I mean is like, you know, just this rapid rise of technology, you know, globalization. I think a, a uniform thread that I would see and hear from young people stateside and abroad is, just uncertainty about what their futures held for them economically. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a child of immigrants and my dad was very much like, you're going to become a doctor. And I think was very disappointed when I didn't do that. <laughs> but um, where, where was your dad an immigrant from? From India, from West Bengal. Oh, wow. I'm yeah. In and, India. and so, you know, his thing was, okay, how do we get our kids into the system, you know, into like that ladder, that upward trajectory. And for him, it was, you know, medical profession, as you can imagine, a lot of South Asian parents yeah. had that same advice. But I think young people today, like there isn't necessarily that certainty around what they're going to do for a vocation. So they are going to have seven to eight jobs over the course of their career. And many in industries which haven't been even, you know, haven't even been um, haven't even been created yet or invented yet. And so, you know, I think giving people the skills to weather that is or like not giving people, but like, you know, thinking about what skills people need to go through massive shifts and changes, I think is, is a universal theme, which applies here, which applies, you know, to countries abroad. I'm excited that you've agreed to come and be one of the keynotes at our global faith forum. And uh, our, our, our key guest for that whole event is, is Dr. Alalisa. Uh, and so we'll have everyone from you to Hamza Youssef and, uh, Christians like Christine Kane and David Beasley, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize along with the World Food Program. I mean, it's a uh, me and Majid and David. I mean, it's just it's going to be an exciting time. I'm looking forward to it. Why? Why did you agree to do that? Why do you think it's important? I just you know what struck me about before you were talking about how you just strike up conversations with people and that relationship building is really important. Um, I think that's giving yourself too little credit um, because I think that you, I think where we all need to kind of look inside ourselves is the reasons and the ways why we want to engage the other, you know, and I just find you Bob to be like just a naturally curious person who wants to listen and learn from other people. And oh, I think, please tell my wife that, would you say it again? <laughs> Do you want to, what was that L word? No, no, no. I didn't say that in, L listen, in family listen, relationships. Listen, tell, yeah. Say it again. I want my wife to <laughs> hear this on this podcast. Look, but you have to have this, I think, innate curiosity and a desire to listen to other people because you want to learn something, not just because you're waiting to hear what they have to say. And so, um, I think those are traits and characteristics that make whatever thing you're producing. And I have a lot of respect for Imam Majid an easy yes, you know, because I think I know that it will be an opportunity to talk about things that are important at, at, in people's hearts. I think that it's an important, I mean, I, I think those things are important to bridge, but 
not just for bridging sake, but because we get to know one another better and then we can find there are points of connection and synergy. And, you know, I think even people like us, who's this is our, our full-time job, right? Figuring out how do we meet the other? How do we bridge divides? Uh, even I have to do introspection and think about like, what what is really, what are the motivating factors behind what I do, why I do this? And I hope that whatever it is we do in Dallas in October, that, you know, people who are listening or in the crowd leave with that, you know, question mark, that curiosity, like, I want to know more, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the goal, you certainly wouldn't have invited me if the goal was to learn about Islam, because I'm not a Sheikh Hamza who you will also have on stage, right? But the goal is really like, how do we build, how do we be with one another, in 2021, in this country, you know, in this world. I've found that if you really want to get to know people uh, and you're going to meet with people that are very opposite than you, you have to listen. But I've also discovered the reason we have a lot of the conflict is because we stay away from people we disagree with. And when we do, we're more apt to believe things that other people say about those people. You know, there's two views in, in the world. One says, uh, people you disagree with, shame them, stay away from them. You're against them. The other says to uh, build a bridge to them. And that seems to be what you've done. It seems to be what Aspen Institute has done. How do you handle the criticism? Because I get it. I'm sure you get it. Anybody who works with people outside our own tribe, it yeah. can be tough. Yeah. I mean, I have a uh, six-year-old now, and so I have to explain to her what I do in the world. And it's not easy to explain what a think tank is and all of those things, right? So I tell her that I'm a builder and and I'm trying to build things to make this country better, to make this world better. And I... So the way I respond to criticism or the way I address it, it depends who it's coming from, but is looking to what people are building. So are they criticizing me because they're sitting behind their screen on their sofa and like not actually doing anything in the world? Then, you know, mm-hmm. I don't feel like that is as legitimate as the people who are actively using their minds and their bodies to do something in the world. So if you're doing something like I, you know, I'll take the criticism for it. I think it's, I know that it's a harder thing to do is actually this bridging work to not just run into our corners and ignore yeah. the other person. But I also know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think you find, you know, we found each other, you find your allies, you find your people along the way. And so, and, and they give you, str- they give you strength to do it better. You said it earlier though, you've got to have your own introspection. You've got to learn. I mean, yesterday I was with some people, you probably know them. And uh, we were talking about extremism and challenges around the world and here in the States. And, and uh, she said, oh, Bob, I cringe when I hear you use that word. And, and I said, what word? What did I just say? And, and yet, to me, it was a word that was perfect. I never thought about it. Yeah. And, and she challenged me. She said, you know, in my context, if I use that word, conversation's over. And I thought, wow. I mean, you have to, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you have really got to think about vocabulary yeah. and uh, how you say things. And that can, that can be hard for a Texan because we just kind of let her rip and that can, uh, that can get us in a lot of trouble. All right. Here's some fun questions I want to ask you. Just quick answers. Define what love your neighbor means to you. Oh, gosh. Okay. So there's two things that I think of in my tradition, in the Islamic tradition that defines love your neighbor. And one is, you know, this verse from the Quran, which is that we've created you from nations and tribes so that you might know one another. And the other is this idea, this concept of fitra, 
that it um, is in the Muslim tradition, which means that every human is born in a state of purity and innocence. And so I put those things together and I'm like, I don't see myself as better than anybody, you know, and what, and so what that means to me is like, I want to be very involved in the place that I live. I think we talked about this a little bit before, but I like we're so lucky to live. I'm so lucky to be a Muslim, a woman and an American living in this country. You know, and we have so many advantages over so many other people. Right. And therefore, but the grace of God go, I like I see when I go to visit, you know, family, like what my life could have easily been like, you know, you, you, I hear a spirit of gratitude out of you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, despite all the headaches and, uh, you know, the jerks that can make like life tough, tough for you. I don't hear this victim, this bitterness, but a, gra- a spirit of gratitude yeah. is have you always been that way or did you have to develop that? No, I think I developed that as I found my way because I, I mean, I did these jobs in my twenties, Bob, that were really mind numbing and they were like in corporate America and I don't want to denigrate corporate America, but I went on my own journey, you know, before I then went back to grad school and had to learn um, and learn my way to my calling or like, you know, being in the social sector, being able to work on this kind of stuff every day, which I think is a blessing. So I think that's where it starts from. And then I just think, I think the older you get, the more humility, I hope, or yeah. let me tell, speak in my eye terms, like the older I get, the more humility I have about how much control I have over anything, um, uh, you know, among, about any of that. So, yeah, I'm constantly grateful for, you know, all of the gifts that God gives me. All right. Last question. What's a hope for the future in the work that you're doing? What's your dream? Oh, gosh, um, that's a big one. That's not a small question that we move towards justice. And we acknowledge the things that, you know, and we're honest about the things that we have failed in as, you know, humans, as Americans, but that we move together in the pursuit of something better. That's good. Hard to admit our wrongs. Zenat, this has been fun. And I'm excited for you to be here. Can't wait for you to meet my wife and daughter and daughter-in-law and my grandkids. We're going to have some... We're going to have some fun October 10 and 11. Uh, You can go online now and register for that at globalfaithforum.com. And uh, we want you to come. We're going to have a blast. You'll get to hear Zenat and a lot of other people. So make it a priority. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Bold Love Podcast. During this episode, you heard that Znat will be joining Pastor Bob at a historic event that's going on in October of 2021 called the Global Faith Forum. It will be one of the very first national gatherings between Christians and Muslims and other faith leaders. And we will gather and discuss bridging the gap in our communities as the fear between faiths shouldn't be something that causes us to destroy one another in the world in which we live, but to understand one another so we can move forward building flourishing communities together. The speaker lists are incredible and will include Dr. Muhammad Alisa, Christine Kane, David Beasley from the World Food Program, Ambassador Sam Brownback, and Ambassador David Saperstein, along with many other faith leaders to come together for this historic gathering in Dallas, Texas in October. And guess what? You are invited to come. Space is incredibly limited 
limited and filling up. So go ahead and reserve your spot now at globalfaithforum.com. That's globalfaithforum.com and do so today. And also for full show notes and links uh, to the details of this episode, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com and find links and show notes there. We appreciate you so much for joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Hope to see you at the Global Faith Forum, and we'll see you next time.